We turn now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, 22, verses 1 through 14. <coughs> Matthew 22, 1 through 14. <clears throat> And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise, And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready. But they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into utter darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. May God bless these solemn words to our hearts. Dear church family, here we are again. The end of another year. This year has slip by uncontrollably fast. And the older we get, all of us who are getting older say that, it, they go faster and faster. Life slips away. Boys and girls, you may think that one or two years is a long time. But when you get older, a year seems like a month. Life is so, so very short. And eternity is so very, very long. Thomas Watson said, if you piled all the sand in the world into a sky and a heaven-piercing pile, for miles long, and a bird came by every 1,000 years and took one grain of sand and moved it to a new pile. And after all the billions and trillions and zillions of years and numbers higher than that were passed, and the whole sand pile would be moved over. Eternity has scarcely begun. Because eternity is timelessness. 
Eternity is eternity. It's forever. And so how foolish it would be, don't you think, to play games with the one soul you have and risk that soul in the lifestyle of sin for the little drop of 100 years, if you live to be 100, in this life, compared to eternity. What shall it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Eternity means heaven or hell. And so it's absolutely critical that you don't postpone seeking the Lord, boys and girls, teenagers. It's absolutely critical that we are born again now. We don't know whose name will be on the necrology in 2024. Those whose names are here that will hear this morning. I doubt if any of them expected to be there. Nehemiah Rogers, another Puritan, once said, there's no man so old that doesn't think he has one more year yet to live. But see, your name, my name, can well be on that necrology next year. Next year. Are you ready? Are you living? Are you living like you have one incredibly valuable soul that is destined for eternity and needs to be prepared? Are you prepared? Are you in Christ? Have you been born again? Or are you making light of the gospel? New Year's Eve, or New Year's Day, or Old Year's Day, I should say, is a day in which we need to do some sober reflection. When I talk to my theological students about how to preach on the day of December 31, I say to them, you need to try to bring three things together. Warning. Invitation. And comfort. And the text I have for you this morning maybe gravitates a bit more towards the warning and the invitation. But there's comfort here too. And I want to preach to you this morning about the danger of making light the gospel. Treating it in a light way. So, we'll be taking a quick walk through this passage, but our focus this morning is just on verse 5a. But they made light of it. And our theme, then, is making light of Christ and his gospel invitation. First, what does that mean to make light of it? Second, why is it sinful? And third, what are its consequences? Well, our text this morning is a parable. It's a parable that Jesus teaches us about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught his disciples, quite a few parables about the kingdom of heaven, didn't he? But this time he says, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king who made a marriage for his son. 
And Jesus is speaking into the context in which he finds himself here. And what he's saying is, in verse 2, that God is represented, his father is represented by the certain king who made a marriage feast for his son, which is, of course, Jesus Christ, who is meat indeed and drink indeed for sinners. Through the satisfaction of Jesus Christ for sinners, through his passive and active obedience, doing everything that needs to be done so sinners can be saved, God the Father has found a way to have his justice satisfied and to declare that all things are now ready for this marriage feast and sinners can come and be saved and feast on the good things of Jesus Christ and find salvation in him alone. So that's all embedded in verse 2. This is what Jesus is talking about. Now, in this heavenly kingdom, Jesus says, God sends out invitations. God sends out invitations to come to this wedding. Now, what do you do when you get an invitation to go to a wedding? I'll tell you what I do. My heart skips a beat, and I think, oh boy, I hope we're home. <laughs> and I turn open my calendar. Ah, oh, good. I can go. We can go to the wedding, Mary. We can go to the wedding. Great. Well, you want to. Your, your natural tendency, like ours, is, yes, we want to go. But this invitation, something strange here. Something strange about it. God sends out invitations, Jesus is saying, by means of his servants, his ministers. And he sends them to unworthy, guilty sinners, persuade them to come just as they are, to be united in sacred union, living, tender union, with a perfect bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And it's rejected. Can you believe that? A full and free and rich invitation with no conditions attached other than that our lives need to be surrendered to him, which is in a sense a big condition because we're all selfish. But the invitation comes to all who are bidden. That is, all who hear the gospel. And all of this is represented, you see, in this royal marital feast. Jesus is speaking about par- parabolically. Now, these invitations were sent primarily in Jesus' day to the Jews. To the Jews. And Jesus is speaking in verse 3 as we walk through this parable, particularly about the Old Testament prophets. He sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. So men like Isaiah were sent out to the Jews to say, you've, you've got to turn from your wicked ways. You've got to turn to the Messiah. He's coming. Isaiah 53, what an invitation. Isaiah 55, come and buy without money and without, without milk and without price. It, it's, it's amazing how the Old Testament prophets invited the Jews. But the Jews refused to live by faith out of the promised Advent Messiah. So Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, again, he sent forth other servants telling them, tell them which are bidden, behold, I have prepared my dinner. So this is now not the Old Testament prophets. This is Jesus. This is the apostles sending out invitations 
proclaiming the name of the Messiah who has arrived. Behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed. All things are ready. Come to the marriage. So, the Jews in the Old Testament got invitations. The vast majority have rejected them to come and to be married to the Messiah. Now, Jesus himself comes. And look at verse 5. But they made light of it. The Old Testament Jews made light of it. The New Testament Jews made light of it. And went their ways. One to his farm. One to his merchandise. You see, everyone had his excuse. They made light of it. In the Greek, the word light there means they didn't, they didn't really care. They ascribed little value to it. They ascribe more value to their temporary farm or their merchandise that they would have for a few decades. They ascribe more value to that than being prepared for a never, never, never ending eternity and knowing true joy in life by being united to Jesus Christ and having the best of both worlds. Isn't that amazing? Do you know a blindness that is more severe than this blindness? This is utter stupidity. To make light of the gospel. To make light of the only Savior who can save you. Who can prepare you for eternity. To put more value on your earthly possessions than your never dying soul. It makes no sense. And you see, then what happens is, well, they not only did that, but they took those servants, that is, they took the Old Testament prophets, they took John the Baptist, they took uh, the apostles, you know, many of the apostles were, were killed for preaching the gospel, they entreated them spitefully and slew them. So instead of loving the servants of Christ and saying, you've brought us the gospel and the good tidings of great joy, they killed them. And the king is very angry. Look at verse 7. The king is very angry. And he sends forth his armies and destroys those murderers and burns up their city. This is an obvious reference, of course, to 70 A.D., that God would be so angry for how the Jews treated Jesus and his apostles and Christianity that God would send the Roman armies to destroy Jerusalem. What a tragedy. What a tragedy to make light of the gospel. And then, Jesus says, My father still does not give up on having the wedding and having a full wedding. So he says, verse 8, to his servants, the wedding is still ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. That is, they made light of it. They didn't care about it. But I say to you now, go therefore unto the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid them to the marriage. So this now is referring to the future times, after Jesus gets rejected, after Jesus is going to be crucified, after his apostles are going to be beheaded and killed by the sword, and after Stephen is going to be stoned to death, and God is going to send out ministers and faithful servants and keep bringing the message, keep bringing the invitation throughout the centuries to come. Go into the highways Gather together as many as you shall find. Bid them to the marriage, verses 9 and 10 say. And, and, and invite both bad and good. Both people who are well-respected, but, but also people who are notorious sinners. That's what we're called to do to the end of time, you see. 
to the Lord comes in the clouds. We're to go out. This congregation is to go out and bid people come to the marriage. There's only one way to be saved in Jesus Christ. We're to know that way ourselves, but we're also to be evangelists to speak it to others. Do we know that ourselves, though? That's the question this morning on December 31. You see, we need to be ready. It's possible to be faithful church attending members. It's possible that all your, all your neighbors think you're a solid Christian. You have no doubt about where you're going because you live such an exemplary life. But you see, verse 11 says the king comes in and investigates his guests, examines them. And he sees a man there without a wedding garment. What does that mean? Well, that means there are hypocrites in the church who sit at the wedding table, can come to the Lord's Supper, no doubt. But at the day of judgment, they'll be found without a wedding garment on. What a tragedy that will be to think all your life you're a believer and you find out at the end that you really never had Christ. Christ never became number one in your life. The wedding garment is Christ and his righteousness, of course. And you can't meet Christ without his righteousness. And so the king says to the wedding guest, how'd you come in here without the wedding garment? The man is speechless. He knows he has no real vital relationship with Christ. He knows that he hasn't been brought to true faith and repentance. He knows it's just all form. He's, he's at the wedding, but his heart isn't there. And Jesus says, my father will say to him, take him out, bind him hand and foot, cast him away into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a description, of course, of hell. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, don't misunderstand that text. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called. Billions are called. Compared to the billions that have heard the gospel in the world today, there are few that are chosen. But we know, of course, from other texts in the Bible, that the numbers of a chosen are beyond what any man can number on the great day. So don't take that up to say, well, there's just one here and one there around the world. No, no. God has millions of people on planet Earth. But compared to the ones who hear the gospel, you see, the majority reject it. The majority will get thrown into hell even after hearing the gospel. What a solemn warning that is for all of us today. So that's, that's a quick walkthrough through the passage. But now I want to focus. I want to focus on what is this thing making light of the gospel. Verse 5a. What does it mean? Well, it means to disregard Christ. To esteem him as not absolutely essential. To make light of Christ means to be able to live without a Savior for your soul. It means to be going to eternity on your own account. It means that somehow... You think inside that you're going to be able to stand before God without a Savior. How can that be? You're a sinner. God is holy. You know you need that Savior. And yet somehow you go on without Him, even though He invites you to the wedding. So I've got seven words. Seven words I want to give you as memory pegs. Yeah, what, what, this, what this means here, I'll just do them quickly. 
The first word is meditation. Meditation. If we esteem Christ lightly, we don't remember and affectionately meditate about him. We really don't hardly think about him. Oh, we, we say our prayers, but and we end our prayers with, for Jesus' sake. But he's not our number one love. He's not our, our Lord and our Savior. We don't affectionately remember him. Our thoughts don't go out after him. You see, then we're esteeming Christ and his gospel lightly. We have no heart for Christ. And what is that but unbelief? That's grievous sin. Word number two, conversation. Conversation. Things you esteem highly, they become evident in your conversation, don't they? You, you talk about them. They command your thoughts. Your, your tongues are busy with things that are important to you. But when you esteem the gospel lightly, you just go through the motions. You come to church, five minutes after church is over, you're, you're talking about secular things. And throughout the week, maybe you never talk about Jesus to anyone. Because, well, you esteem the gospel lightly. You esteem Christ lightly. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks. If you love Jesus more than anyone else in the entire world, how could you never, how could you go through life without saying a word about him to anyone? Someone sent me a poem this week. I, I found it quite convicting also for, also for God's people, actually. I'm going to read it to you. It says this. My friend, I stand in judgment now and feel that you're to blame somehow. This is an unconverted person talking to a child of God, by the way. While on this earth I walked with you day by day and never did you point me the way. You knew the Lord in truth and glory, but never did you tell the story. My knowledge then was very dim. You could have led me safely to him. Though we live together here on earth, you never told me of your second birth. And now I stand this day condemned because you failed to even mention him. You taught me many things, that's true. I called you friend and trusted you. But now I learned, now it's too late, you could have kept me from this fate. We walked by day and talked by night, and yet... You showed me not the light. You let me live, love, and die, and all the while you knew I'd never live on high. Yes, I called you my friend in life and trusted you in joy and strife, yet in coming to this end, I see you really weren't my friend. How embarrassing. How convicting. And we don't speak of the gospel, to strangers, to friends, to family members, to children, to parents. Really? When the Bible says, when Apostle John says, they are of the world, therefore speak they of the things of the world, and the world hears them. And we are members of the church, and we don't speak of the king of the church? Oh, we can talk maybe about church or about church people or about church things, but not speak about the head and the king of the church? Is what the church is all about? That's making light of Christ. Now, I'm not advocating, don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating speaking shallowly about Christ. Lots of people today can speak about Jesus all the time, but their lives don't reflect it. I'm not advocating that. But I am advocating 
that when you love Christ and you're saved and he's your all and in all, you, 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 you cannot, you cannot not ever speak about him to others. Number three, obedience, obedience. We make light of the gospel when we don't obey God, when we don't obey Christ, when we don't do the sermons we hear, when we don't do the scriptures we read. You see, then it's just empty talk. Then we, well, we maybe do some legalistic things, but we don't do them out of the right motive that we want to honor Christ. We make light of the gospel when we don't obey our Lord. Four, security. You know, in this life, we try to secure ourselves in all kinds of areas. With our bodies, medically, we're looking for security. We make wills for when we die about who gets what. And when you make light of the gospel, you see, you spend more time figuring out who's going to get what than where your own soul is going to go. You spend more time figuring out how to do a two-week vacation than how to prepare for a never-ending eternity. You don't ask the question, what will become of me when I die? Or you avoid it. Maybe you ask it, but you avoid it. You run from it. Is my soul on good grounds? You don't face that question. Am I safely wrapped in the blood-bought white robe of Christ's righteousness? Do I have the wedding garment now? We don't seriously ask that question. We want security physically, but not spiritually. Then we make light of Christ and of the gospel. Number five, affection, affection. The things we esteem the most affect us the most deeply. We make diligent efforts to obtain them and to retain them. Isn't that true? They move us with zeal. But when you make light of something, it makes little impression. So, on December 31, you've probably heard over a hundred sermons this year. Did any of them change your life? Did any of them make a profound impact on you? When you heard the law preached, the threatenings of the law preached, did you mourn over your sin? When you heard the pipings of the gospel, did you leap for joy? Or were you gospel-hardened and law-hardened and heaven-hardened and hell-hardened? And your affections were just in the things of this world. I tried to evangelize someone recently, and he said to me, you know, I just, I'm so busy in life. I just got, I, I believe in God, but I just, I just have no time for religion. I'm too busy for religion. Too busy for religion. Is that you, perhaps? Even though you, you know, you spend three hours a week in church on Sunday, but are you too busy for a real relationship with the living God? Well, that, that shows that you're making light of the gospel. It shows that you, you don't have affection in the depths of your soul for these things. Word number six is sacrifice. If you esteem something lightly, you, you're not willing to part with much. You're not willing to deny yourself much for it because it's not that valuable. But in Matthew 13, the merchant who found one pearl of great price sold everything he had to obtain it because it was so valuable. You see, when you become a Christian, 
you're willing to sacrifice things in your life for God because what you get when you get God in Christ and he becomes your supreme love and you can say, whom have I in heaven but thee? There's none upon earth I desire compared to thee. Then you're willing to cut off the arm that offends and pluck out the eye that offends him. You're willing to sacrifice because the gospel is so valuable, because Christ is so precious. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all other things will be added to you. And all those, all other things are secondary to you because Christ is number one. Can you say that this morning? Though you've come short. Oh yes, of course, we all come short. But you can say, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I want to live a life totally dedicated to thee. I want to obey thee. I want to sacrifice for thee. And everything I sacrifice is but nothing compared to what thou hast sacrificed for me by giving thy own blood for me. Is it once, twice, ten times, a hundred times in 2023? Did you just stop and think, if you're a believer, Christ sacrificed his life? He died for me? Can I then at least live for him? Do you ever think that way? See, then you're not making light of the gospel. But if you think you're going to be a Christian, and it's all taking, 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 and not sacrificing, 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 you're sorely mistaken. My son, give me thy heart. God wants the totality of who you are. He doesn't want 10%. You don't tithe your life to God. You surrender everything to God. Who surrendered everything to save you? And word number seven, priority, priority. You see, when you lightly esteem something, it has very little priority. Oh, well, yeah, we'll go to church every Sunday. We'll We'll pray at the family table, just a few verses, read the Bible, quick short prayer. We won't talk about what we read. Now, we won't do family worship uh, to any length because, well, we're not good at it or whatever it may be. We make light of it. We've got all the forms in place, all the traditions in place. But really, we can live without Christ as long as we're healthy, as long as we don't have too many troubles. See, this is, this is awful. This is an awful way to live. Oh, yes, we have good intentions. We're going, we know we need to be saved. We're going to seek Him. We try, we we, we pray for conversion, but we don't repent. We don't throw ourselves upon him. Say, Lord, if I perish, I perish, but I'll perish at thy feet. I can't go on without thee. But we do what Martin Luther said. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. We're like the Pharisees. We know the way. We point the direction. We tell our neighbors how they should live, perhaps. But we don't walk that way ourselves. We make light of the gospel. So point two is this. Why is it so sinful to make light of the gospel? I have just four thoughts here for you. I'll I'll speed up here because the time is running by. Number one, You need to consider that when you make light of Christ, that he has not made light of you. He has not made light of you. He came from heaven. He suffered. He died to invite you to come to his righteousness, to come to be married to him. And when you 
make light of him. You who are less than a piece of dust upon the balances and vile dust at that, you are rejecting the only salvation that will ever be offered to you. It's an insult to the Savior. God says, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Isaiah 5, 3 and 4, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. And we are, we are his vineyard, all of us, the church. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I look that it should bring forth grapes, does it bring forth wild grapes? Can't God say that of us? If we've never bowed the knee and repented and believed in him alone by the grace of his spirit for salvation... Number two, consider when you make light of Christ, you're making light of your own dreadful need of him and you're making light at the same time of his dreadful sufferings. He didn't suffer to just have you turn your back upon him. He suffered to invite you to come to a Savior who's done everything that needs to be done for your salvation. You're despising Gethsemane. You're despising Gabbatha. You're despising Golgotha when you turn your back on Christ. Don't make light of Him. He's given His all for sinners just like you. Just like you. What a tragedy to hear the gospel and reject it. And third, consider you are making light of the most important matter in all the world. Christ said to the woman of Samaria, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Jesus can give you joy unspeakable in this life and joy forever for all eternity. There's never a Christian who's known Jesus personally who hasn't said, this is the greatest joy I've ever known to know him. He's altogether lovely. He's the chief among 10,000. And when you make light of the gospel, you're pushing away the most important thing you could ever receive. Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you destroy your own soul? Paul wrote to the Corinthians, had the Jews known they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Oh, had you known, if you know the joy of serving Christ and knowing Christ and loving Christ and worshiping Christ and having Christ be your all in all, you would not spend your life in this world. You would not make light of the gospel. Dear friend, I just plead with you. Don't you see it? Don't you understand the gospel? It's available for the greatest of sinners. Give up the battle of trying to find happiness in this world. Surrender to him. Yes, but oh, I, I, need, I need grace to do that. Of course you need grace to do that. But the Savior who's willing to die for sinners just like you has a Father who's willing to give Him to sinners just like you and has a Holy Spirit who's willing to work in sinners just like you. See, there's no problem on the part of God's willingness to save you. The problem is your unwillingness to be saved and to surrender your life to the triune God. Somehow, there's some hindrance that's keeping you away from this glorious, beautiful, wonderful Savior. And then finally, 
Consider whose salvation you're making light of. When you make light of the gospel, you're making light of your own salvation. You're making light of your own future. You're saying, I'm 30 years old, or I'm 10 years old, or I'm 50 years old, and I could die tomorrow, I could die in 2024, but I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to, maybe someday I'll seek God. What? You're going to gamble your life away? If you're making light of Christ, you see, you're also making light of your own soul. And you're making light of God Himself. And you're making light of God's Word. And you're making light of God's invitations. And you're making light of all the truths of the Bible. And you're making light of eternity. Why do you halt between two opinions? If God is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, really if this world is nothing, if you're nothing but an evolutionary blob of nebulae from the bottom of the ocean that's evolved over billions of years and you're nothing more than an animal and there is no eternity. If the bales of this world are God, follow that. See what that will do for you. It will never bring you true joy. It will never bring you depth of satisfaction. It will never bring you a meaningful life. It's empty. It's futile. Only God can give you young people boys and girls, parents, grandparents. Only this Savior, this Gospel can give you what you need. Well, let me close by looking with you at four consequences now of going this sinful way of making light of Christ and rejecting His invitations and refusing to surrender to Him. The first is this, first consequence, you won't live well. You won't live well. You'll miss the best joys of this life. You'll miss finding the best friend in the world. The Lord Jesus Christ who sits closer than a brother. You'll miss finding the greatest happiness in this world. There is no peace at the Lord unto the wicked. Isaiah 48:22 You know in your conscience, don't you? You know in your conscience that this world's joys are altogether lighter than vanity itself. As the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us. Don't pursue the trivialities of this life and ignore the realities of the eternal world. Don't count weighty what God counts light. And don't count light what God counts weighty. All your pursuits done without Christ will only condemn you in that day. Secondly, you'll miss the only joy of the life to come. There is no joy in hell. There's no friendship in hell. And there's no invitation to come to the wedding in hell. It's too late. It's too late. In hell, your conscience will be like a nagging worm eating away at you. And you'll say, even as you keep sinning in hell, even as you keep getting bitter against God in hell, and you keep deserving more hell forever and ever and ever, you'll also have a nagging worm saying inside of you, I've made light of Christ. I made light of Christ. I had a lifetime to seek Him. And I threw my life away. I threw my soul away. Do you ever think what hell will be? Do you think about that? You know, we're not very good at handling pain, are we? We have a hard time handling a toothache. Can you imagine what hell will be? With the wrath of God upon you? 
and you will be able to answer one question on a thousand? And at the forefront of those questions, no doubt, will be the question, why? Why did you reject me when I offered myself to you thousands of times? How shall we escape? Hebrews 2, verse 3. If we neglect so great salvation. Reverend Korharink once had a little track about hell. And I remember reading that as a young man. He said there are 237 references. I still remember that number. To hell in the Bible. And he said every every. Reference to hell is like a road sign saying, don't go down this road any further. Don't go down this broad way to destruction any further. Stop, stop, turn, flee, repent, believe in Christ alone. And if you live your life, you keep going down the broad way, you ignore those 237 signs and so much more. You just destroy yourself. You'll just destroy yourself. J.C. Ryle said the saddest road to hell is that which runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and through the midst of warnings and invitations. How we need to have that become real. If you're still unsaved, think about it. The saddest road to hell is that which runs under the pulpit and past the Bible and through the midst of warnings and invitations. And the judgment day, Revelation 22, God will say, verse 11, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. Across the gates of hell will be written, too late, too late to turn back, too late to accept the invitation, too late to be saved. And you're just one heartbeat away from eternity. It makes no sense. It makes no sense not to fall to God's side. He's willing to give you repentance. He's willing to give you faith. He's willing to give you everything you need. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He that has no money, come, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread, and labor for that which satisfies not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. You and I must be saved. There is no option. There is no other way to live. There's no other way to die. God has everything you need. God has done everything you need. God can give you the repentance. He can give you the faith. You need to surrender all to him. All three persons of the Trinity are equally willing To save the greatest of sinners who cry out, do for me what I can't do for myself. I'm going to close this sermon with Luke 9. Luke 9. Or rather, Luke 11, verse 9. If you forget everything I said this morning, I I hope this will stick. I say to you, Luke eleven nine, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone, everyone that asketh, receiveth. He that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, 
know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask Him? Does that sound like a stingy God who doesn't want to give Himself away? If you're willing to do it, being a sinful father, how much more God is willing to give his Holy Spirit to work salvation in you if you ask him. Son of David, have mercy on me. Surrender. Stop turning your back on God. Turn your back on the world and turn your face to God and get down on your face before him and repent of your sin, your gross sin of unbelief and cry out, oh God, save me from myself. Save me from making light of the gospel. Save me. Conquer me and lead me to everlasting life. Amen. Gracious God, please let this last Lord's Day be used by this willing Holy Spirit to gather sinners in to the gospel net of free and sovereign grace. I pray, Lord, use this sermon this morning with all of its shortcomings for the everlasting salvation of someone, could it be of many, sitting here right now? Oh God, work in every unconverted person in this audience a profound conviction that they can't go on this way anymore. Save me, or I perish. Make it real. Draw them. Drive them to thyself and comfort thy people despite all their discouragements to end in thee also and to find in Christ afresh today everything they need for this life and a better one to come. In Jesus' name, amen. On March 28, 2023, Larry Lynch passed away at the age of 64. On April 11, 2023, Don Inglesma passed away at the age of 99. On April 15, 2023, Will or Bill Kozachuk passed away at the age of 67. On May 17, 2023, Martina Fader passed away at the age of 92. On August 21, Larry Van Beek passed away at the age of 74. On September 8, 2023, Neil Balut passed away at the age of 87. On October 8, 2023, Gloria Swan passed away at the age of 69. October 15, 2023, Jane Balut passed away at the age of 92. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Let us therefore fear, 
lest a promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and He will have mercy upon him and to our God for He will abundantly pardon. 1 Peter 1, Hebrews 4, Isaiah 55.